Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Roy Wood Jr. is a comedian. You've probably seen him as a correspondent on The Daily Show. And I guess you could say he took kind of an odd path to get there. I mean, he's done comedy pretty much his entire life. But he majored in broadcast journalism, and for a while it was looking like that was going to be his career. He was a real regular radio host. He was a reporter doing the news, which isn't an easy industry to crack when you spend every free minute of your time doing stand-up. The problem I had in college graduating, um, my last two years of school, I spent on the road as a comic. My first two years of comedy, I was still in college. So when I graduated, I had no experience in my field, not even an internship. So... You can't just walk into a newspaper or a radio station and go, hey, I like to write articles. Do you have any articles? No, I was in Missouri telling jokes for $30. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Roy Wood Jr. talks with me about going from being a radio DJ to being one of the funniest comedians around today. He'll also talk with me about how being on The Daily Show has given him the opportunity to share some of his bolder takes. All right, get rid of the Confederate flag or not. Okay, that's fine. We can have that debate. But here's a bigger question. If we get rid of the Confederate flag, how will I know who the dangerous white people are? Then Peter Serafinowicz, he's a British actor and comedian. He stars in the Amazon show The Tick. What else does he do? Well, he's also a music video director. Uh, He was the voice of Darth Maul in Star Wars. And he also does a pretty killer Phil Hartman impression. Okay, right. What we're going to do today is uh, talking with beverages, right? Now, I'm going to tell you a story. Then, if you've ever found yourself falling in love with a team because of their logo, I've got a blog for you. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is Roy Wood Jr. He was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, and he got his start in radio. Sometimes he wrote, sometimes he produced or reported, but at heart, he has always been a stand-up, doing his act whenever he found time. In 2010, he finished third on Last Comic Standing, which is when his career took off. He got his own radio show, he got acting roles, he started getting booked in bigger venues— As a comic, he's kind of a truth teller, but a little self-deprecating and weird, too. Last year, he released his album Father Figure, which made a bunch of top ten lists. Losing weight. They tell you everything you need to know about losing weight, except for how much it's going to cost. But it's hard when it's time to lose weight. I'm drinking all these damn smoothies. They're expensive. Five, six damn dollars for fruit and ice in a cup. How? And they trick you with smoothies. They try to trick us because they put all them little extra words and adjectives in the name of the smoothie. Don't fall for it. It's fruit and ice. Okay, you had a mango sunset peach tranquility. And you go, uh, no. Mm, I ain't had no tranquility. Take the tranquility out. Take that out. Hold the tranquility. That should, that should knock it down to 350. That should get it down. Smoothie's so expensive, I'm surprised rappers don't talk about them in their songs. These days, Roy's got a pretty good day job. He's a correspondent on The Daily Show. Here's a little bit of him from earlier this year. He called it the state of black stuff, 
for 2018. It was kind of his response to President Trump's State of the Union. The outlook, my friends, is bright. The Oscars are looking blacker than ever. Black Panther is setting box office records for the first time. An African-American woman will be speed skating at the White Winter Olympics. And in 2018, in 2018, there are over 400 black women running for public office. The black future is so promising. Oh, my God. I need some cocoa butter. I got to get ready. Got to get ready for all this blackness. So, black citizens, you ask where we is. The answer is on our way to a place where the state of black is stronger than ever. God bless black people. God bless Gail King. And God bless season two of Atlanta. Roy Wood Jr., welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, <laughs> how the heck are you? I'm well. <laughs> the state of blackness address that I gave the day after Donald Trump gave the state of the union address. Did you sign up for that or did somebody sign you up for that? Uh, it's interesting at The Daily Show where, you know, a lot of stuff is pitched to you. And every now and then I'll pitch some stuff. You know, I would say it's 50-50, but... Some of the best things that I've done on the show were not my brainchild. And it's so funny sometimes to see a white writer and a black writer come up to you. And the black writer is like, like pitching you in the segment. And the white writer is like kind of like playing the background. But they're also like going, yeah, we just think it would be funny if you called it the state of black stuff, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's the state of black ish. We know what it is. I have a colleague at my podcast network named Dan McCoy, who's a writer on The Daily Show, and I'm picturing Dan McCoy pitching you that joke right now. Oh, dude, it's the the way that the minds work in the writer's ring, the writer's wing of The Daily Show. They are the red blood cells of the show. That entire operation banks on a guy like Dan McCoy having his coffee and petting his cat in the morning and making sure that he's in a good mood to create some stuff. Because this is the same guy who can tell you the history and lineage of Klanons dating back to the original Star Trek series in the 60s. <laughs> and then he can also go, you know what else would be funny? A Gail King joke. <laughs> well, everybody loves that kind Gale. of diversity. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? She's everybody's best friend. <laughs> you seem like you're almost fanatical about making sure that your take and your perspective isn't one that other people have heard. Yeah, it's definitely – the problem is that as a comedian, we used to be the voice box of the people. I I feel like comedians got more acclaim for saying what everyone else was thinking. So you take a George Carlin or you give me 90s Chris Rock where everybody was thinking that but had nowhere to say it. You weren't writing op-eds for a newspaper. There was nowhere on the Internet for you to voice that opinion. But fast forward now, 20, 25 years later, I'm saying the same thing you're saying, then I'm not interesting. That used to be the thing that comedians were heralded for. But now you get on Twitter and a comic may have a thought about a joke, but honestly, that joke and that thought may have been done and said 12 different ways by the time you get it on stage, develop and polish it and put it out 
in an hour special nine months after the inciting incident. So I feel like for me as a performer, I'm better served to the public at large if I can help you look at this issue through a different prism or let's look at it in a way that no one else has looked at it. I want to play a joke of yours. This is in your special father figure, but this is a version that you told on Conan a few years ago. And Conan, of course, tapes in L.A. And at the time, you were living in L.A. And you went on the show and and talked about dealing with not necessarily understanding the, the cultural rules of gangs in L.A. I understand people, man. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I live in L.A. now. And what, what no one tells you before you come to L.A. is that the gangs are still serious. <laughs> they're, still, they're very serious in L.A. They get mad if you wear the wrong color in the wrong neighborhood. Here's the problem with being black. <laughs> All right. There's a lot of problems with being black. <laughs> Here's one of the problems with being black is that if you wear the wrong color shirt and the wrong hood, the gang dude wanted to fight me. I'm wearing a red polo. It was a nice two-button polo. Why can't I wear a red shirt again? I'm 34. I'm grown. I should be allowed to wear a normal colored shirt again, sir. Why are you in my face? What hood you claiming? What hood you claiming? I'm claiming adulthood, sir. That's my hood. I'm grown now. It didn't make any sense. I didn't understand it because I had a blazer on. I had on a red two-button polo with a blazer on on top of the shirt. How could you possibly confuse me with the gang? Even if I am in a gang, obviously I'm a supervisor. You're out of line. I feel like gang adjacent is an undertold story. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a part of that that for me that never left me. You know, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, I was raised by like and I joke about this, but it's serious. Part of the reason why I'm a Miami Dolphins fan is because they were gang safe colors. And growing up, I knew I could with confidence wear turquoise and coral and no, I would not be attacked because there was no gang rocking coral where I was from, (laughs) at least. The easiest thing to let gang members know that I wasn't in a gang is that I used to walk home carrying a flute and a soccer ball, <laughs> which pretty much lets them know, hey, I'm Switzerland. <laughs> you know, Come take my lunch money, sure, that's fine, but at least I'm not going to get shot. I, I, I had a decent relationship with gang members in my neighborhood because when I was in the fifth grade, my mother bought a basketball goal. She had a basketball goal installed in our driveway plexiglass with a breakaway rim. So we were one of the few houses in the neighborhood that had a two-car garage. And the way the garage was set up, the width of it, we could play almost half court. If you played off into the dirt a little bit, we were essentially playing half court basketball. And most of the people in gangs would come and shoot ball at our house because we also had really tall trees. So it was the only shaded court in the neighborhood in the middle of July at two in the afternoon, in the dead of summer. So a lot of the gangbangers in the hood knew that if you mess with me, you can't come and shoot ball. So it pretty much gave me some degree of protection in the hood. Like I remember walking home with friends and bangers would pull up and steal their sneakers and leave me alone, which which going like now that I'm older, I wish they'd have stole my sneakers too and then just gave them back to me. <laughs> Cause it looked like I was setting them up. <laughs> like, 
hey, man, don't you want to go to computer classes at the library? And then we cut through the South Park projects, and there they would be, and they would jam them up against the wall and take their Barclays or the Jordans or whatever. And I'd just be standing there with my soccer ball like, oh, that sucks for you. Barefoot, huh? All the way home, huh? You're from Birmingham, Alabama. Can you tell me what is Birmingham like? Birmingham is, I think, more modern than people think and more present day than people think. And there's definitely a homeliness and a sense of family to that city. Uh, Big city feel, small town attitude, which I think is probably one of the best balances that you could have. Like, you know, people talk about our commutes and wherever they live in these major metropolises. I'd say that Birmingham is probably only 30 minutes wide, no traffic as a city, you know, from end to end. So I feel like when you're dealing with an area that's a little smaller like that, that you definitely have an opportunity to have a little bit more of a sense of family. And, you know, that's the one thing that I always love about home. And I think that's why so many people who are from Birmingham or from Alabama as a whole still keep one foot in the state. They still kind of come around and dabble. You know, you're liable to see Bo Jackson just hanging out somewhere. You're liable to see Charles Barkley or Condoleezza Rice, Courtney Cox. You know, like there's so many people that are from that region that I think, you know, I feel like they all know that this, no matter where you are, this is home. You went away to school at uh, Florida A&M and you came back to Birmingham. Did you come back to Birmingham because... Uh, you didn't have a job and you didn't have anywhere else to go besides yep. your parents' house. Yep. That's why I went there back. Home. That's why I ding, went back ding, home ding, after ding, college. Ding. Yeah. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. So the problem I had in college, graduating, um, my last two years of school, I spent on the road as a comic. My first two years of comedy, I was still in college. So when I graduated, I had no experience in my field, not even an internship. So you can't just walk into a newspaper or a radio station and go, "Hey, I like to write articles." Do you have any articles? No. I was in Missouri telling jokes for $30. (laughs) So I went home and set up shop at my mom's house and we made a, you know, it was a gentleman's handshake. And I said, look, let me stay here every year for up to three years. For as long as I make more money each year than I did the year before, I get another year in your house up to three years. And she took the deal and, you know, I was able to grow and I was out the house in two years Um, the thing that helped me though, was that in Birmingham, I fell into radio because the guy that, uh, Ricky Smiley, who was like, and still is like king of the city. And he's a, he's also a huge national host as well. Yeah. He's syndicated the same as Tom Joyner and Steve Harvey and just as many homes and his name rings out. Um, but I was replacing Ricky when he was still a local comedian and I had an opportunity to, to get on the morning show and replace Ricky. And I kind of lied, but I got on. And between already being a comic and having a degree in broadcast, it was the perfect melding of two different disciplines. And it it just, it gelled perfectly because not only was I a comedian, but now I was a comedian that could edit my own segments and understood some of the ins and outs on the radio side of things. And I really appreciated that opportunity you know, to to be a part of that. And that's kind of where the dual path, the dual career paths begin, where on one side I'm running comedy and the other side I'm running radio. I listen once in a while here in Los Angeles to Big Boy, and 
I don't think that if you weren't a listener to that kind of radio, you would realize the intensity and the sheen of those programs. Like the amount of polish on that show, like the only thing that I could compare it to is Radiolab on NPR. Like the the level of focus of those breaks is astonishing. Like the amount of distance they can cover in 23 seconds between songs mm-hmm. is unreal. Yeah. And, you know, we also live in a, you know, a short attention span culture now where radio and this is a I'm talking brevity and material at a time where radio breaks were four and a half minutes in the morning. Now you're lucky if you can talk for two minutes, maybe 90 seconds. It's bang, 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 shut up, play the next song. Like that's how radio is set up now, at least uh, in the urban sphere. So, you know, we used to play six songs an hour. And by the time I had and hosted my own morning show in 2012, we were playing almost 10 songs an hour. Morning radio hosting still to this day is a very good paying job in a real market. Would you have been happy to have that job and tour regionally as a comic, you know, headline every three months at the local club and, you know, do Jacksonville and whatever was, you know, within mm. within weekend driving distance? The goals was always to grow radio into a syndicated situation and use the syndication base to perform nationally in city, cities where I was syndicated and use television as leverage to justify getting syndicated faster. That was the original business model. Um, I started running into situations where you know, later into my radio career, I started in 01. I moved to L.A. in 2008. And I was doing radio still over a satellite line in the mornings when I was in L.A. But, you know, I just never stopped focusing on my stand-up. And the more I looked at stand-up in my time in radio, my first six, seven years in radio, what I realized and watching people get fired and watching all of the nitpicking over jokes and content is that stand up is the only thing I'm truly in control of. It's the only it's the only thing that I'll own that nobody can tell me anything about. So I always decided to I decided to focus more on my stand up. And what happened in two thousand six, I got an opportunity to perform at the Montreal Comedy Festival, which is essentially think of it as the Olympic trials for your career or the NFL Combine. If you go here and do well, someone will scoop you up and help you make lots of money and grow your career. And that's faster than radio. It conflicts with radio. So I had to choose. So I chose my career. My interview with Roy Wood Jr. continues after the break. Plus, Peter Serafinowicz, star of Amazon's The Tick. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com slash bullseye for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code bullseye to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Keep dreaming. Make it a reality with a website from Squarespace. 
Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, host of NPR's Embedded, and we've got a new episode all about how Scott Pruitt ended up running the EPA. It's a story about Pruitt's life in the Southern Baptist Church, how he handled a major pollution case, and why he sued the EPA 14 times. Just search for Embedded on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Roy Wood Jr. He's a comic, a radio host, and a correspondent on The Daily Show. What kind of comedy did you think you were going to make your name doing? Did you think that you were going to be um, a comic that performed for black audiences? Because that's a good, you know, that's a good career. But it's not the only way to make a career as a black stand-up. I feel like people make a choice at some point. Yeah, I think it's a lot a lot of it boils down to who you believe relates to what you relate to, you know? You talk about what you talk about and whoever shows up is who shows up. Black people show up, sometimes white people show up to see me, you know. My audience is definitely more diverse than a lot of guys that have been pegged as urban, but I don't think I disassociated myself from black people. I mean, the first 40 minutes of my hour special is just race. I just talk about race. So, I definitely have tried to make sure to talk about issues that are important to me. And I think intrinsically they are automatically important to other black people. Uh, When I started, I just wanted to tell jokes. I didn't care who showed up. And I told jokes everywhere. If you want to make real money as an opening act in the South, you have to appeal to multiple people because there's not enough work in any one demo. Every week you're performing in a different city for a different demo. It might be Rednecks in Paducah, Kentucky, and then the next night you're in Atlanta and you might get shot while you're on stage. And then the next night you're performing for some nice middle-class people. And then the night after that, it's a bunch of 70-year-old black people at a casino in Biloxi, Mississippi. So find me the joke that a dope boy will laugh at, an old person with an oxygen tank will laugh at, and a racist in a country music bar will laugh at. Write that joke. I feel like one of the things that makes your work distinctive from other annoyed comedians, and it may just be because you're from Birmingham, there is a kind of ease to it that not a lot of comedians with a list of complaints have. There's a kind of, there's almost like a a gentle breeze quality when you are complaining about something that is pretty much the opposite of, you know, Lewis Black or whatever. Yeah, Lewis Black is going to have an aneurysm one day. Like, he is just like... (laughs) (laughs) He's such a sweet guy. And I talked to him on this show. (laughs) Such a nice man and a former playwright. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I've tried my best to do things that are um, a little more outside the box, like I could be mad about something, but I really haven't taken a side as much as I've just tried to point out another prism to the issue. Like, all right, get rid of the Confederate flag or not. Okay, that's fine. We can have that debate. But here's a bigger question. If we get rid of the Confederate flag, how will I know who the dangerous white people are? What concessions are in place for us to now identify dangerous white people if we take the Confederate flag away. So the entire argument becomes about what happens if you got rid of the flag. It's not about whether you should or shouldn't. It's just all in hypothetical land, but it's emphatic and emotional. And that's, you know, for me, that's where I think my comedy 
thrives the best more often than not. Roy Wood Jr., thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It's so great to get to talk to you. A pleasure. Thank you. Roy Wood Jr., one of the funniest dudes. Uh, catch him on The Daily Show. Check out his album, Father Figure 2. He's also starting out on a big national tour over the rest of the spring and summer. We'll have links to dates up on our website. You can find the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Peter Serafinowicz has had a very varied career in entertainment. As an actor, he's been on a bunch of British TV shows, Spaced, I'm Alan Partridge, The IT Crowd. He did the voice of Darth Maul in the Star Wars movie The Phantom Menace. He's also a pretty amazing writer and director. Together with Robert Popper, he created Look Around You. It is a bizarre hilarious, incredibly specific homage to those boring educational documentaries that kids watch in school. So, is calcium soluble? Look closely before making your decision. Have you observed the chalky deposit at the base of the beaker? If you have, then you'll have reached the conclusion that no, calcium is insoluble. There is a reason for this. Can you work out what it is? Correct. If calcium were soluble, then our teeth would be open to corrosion through daily contact with saliva. Man would be unable to process foods. Now, Peter has a lead role. He's starring in the Amazon show The Tick. He plays The Tick. If you haven't seen The Tick, some background, it's a superhero story. It was originally a comic book, then it was a cartoon, then it was a live-action show on Fox in the early 2000s, that one with the great Patrick Warburton in the lead. The Tick is a really strange superhero. He is a giant muscle man in a blue suit that has antennas on the head. He has super strength, and it's almost impossible to hurt him, but he's kind of dumb, and he's quite a bumbler. His sidekick is an accountant named Arthur, and he's the only one who can really keep him grounded. Let's take a listen to a little bit from the new series. This scene features Arthur, played by Griffin Newman, and as we're about to hear, Arthur has just woken up to find the tick in bed with him. You're real? Don't get stuck on trivia, man. We got a tiger by the tail. So this is your HQ, huh? No, this is my apartment. This your secret trigger? Don't touch anything! Whoa, check out the crime lab. It's all thorough and complicated. You've got ideas, theories. I like that in a sidekick. Sidekick? Who's saying anything about sidekick? Don't Perfect. Touch this. You got the brains. I got the everything else. Come on, man. Don't you feel it? We're part of a plan that's bigger than the both of us. What are you talking about? I'm a superhero, Arthur. I am nigh invulnerable. I have the reflexes of an Olympic-level jungle cat. I have the strength of 10, perhaps 20 men. A crowded bus stop of men. But my greatest power is this. When destiny speaks, she speaks to me. She says hi, by the way. Peter Serafinowicz, welcome back to the show. Hi. It's nice to have you again. It's been quite a long time, like 10 years or something. Yeah, man, it's been ages. Uh, congratulations on the tick. Uh, it's Thanks, man. so funny. Um, 
I feel like I would never be able to come up with an alternative take on anything that Patrick Warburton had ever done in his career. Right. Okay. I, maybe John Lovitz is another example of that. Like, how could you possibly do anything? Yeah. Uh, well, I yeah. I guess I knew him from Seinfeld, but I didn't really know that. Sh- I didn't really know him in the show. And then when I when I got the job and I, I spoke to Ben Edlin, and he said, um, he said, look, this isn't like a reboot per se. I don't want you. The tick is this character that has lived and gestated in my brain for over 30 years and and uh patrick did a beautiful beloved hilarious version of the tick and i want you to do yours you know so i couldn't help but have a look at a couple of clips it's, it's surprisingly hard to track down online that, well that i show. mean it was hard to track down in the world yeah <laughs> it came and went in a moment uh uh, and I watched about thirty seconds of it, and I thought, "Oh my god, that is so, that is so adorable!" In like, in that 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 phrase has a kind of like a, a sort of a weak connotation, and I mean it in its like true sense. It was like, "Oh god, you just love this guy," you know, and he's heartbreaking. And and I thought, I can't watch anymore because I don't want to be subconsciously influenced by his performance because it's just something because i i'm i'm a mimic by nature it's just something i osmotically do anyway you know and uh, yeah I, I i haven't really seen that much of that much of him he came in and did the show quite a while ago maybe six or seven years ago i was still doing the show out of my house and he came over to my house and you know here's patrick warburton he's uh, not just the tick, you know, he's from Seinfeld. He was on news radio. He was in a yeah. great movie where he was a used car salesman. And um, and he came over and he is so profoundly, I guess the word would be Warburton-esque. Right. Uh, like he's a dad. He's a sports He's a sports dad. You know, he uh, just came in. He's like, yeah, just came over from my uh, my son's football game. You know, hey, yeah. You know, right. it's like it was the most amazing experience ever. And it, in fact, he was so he was so like that in real life that I wondered if he I wonder if he just accidentally figured out what was funny about the way that he is, you know? Yeah, I, I, I wonder that about people in general. You know, I, I, I know there are things about me that I know that are, I do intending to be funny. But I know there are things that I, certainly my wife knows things about me, can see things about me that I will never, ever realize that are funny, that <laughs> I think are probably pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I'm actually I'm going to play. A, this is I think this is one of my favorite examples of pure silliness in your oeuvre. Uh, <laughs> This is this Oof. your oove. This is this character that you did. O O V E. Oove. I'm not continental like you. Oof um, has become oove. This is a character that you did uh, when you had a sketch TV show, and you did you've done it in some other contexts as well. It's you. You're wearing kind of a uh, you're wearing kind of a bodysuit that makes you look like an overweight fifty six year old 
um, the kind of a tired, overweight 56-year-old with a weird little mustache and a TV presenter's uh, manner. And this thing is called the Butterfield Diet. And what we've just heard is him describing impossibly tiny meals that are part of his diet. Well, first of all, we've seen him say, this is what I used to look like and this is what I look like now. And they're exactly the same. But then he's eating these absurdly tiny meals, and uh, that's sort of where we pick up. This for breakfast, this for lunch, this for dinner. Saturday is treat day. For 24 hours, you can literally eat anything. Pizza, birthday pie, pints of cream, pork cylinders, potato grids, artificial bacon, large macs. You name it. Sandwich casserole, chocolate quail's eggs, garlic pudding, fluffy ruffs, hoisin crispy owl, pasta pillows, bonbon bonbons, McFortune cookies. It's up to you. Discount foie gras, egg and ham slabs, during dinner mints, mystery meat, quiches Lorraine, 20 cheese omelette. Anything goes. <laughs> this is just, this is just you spending a day listing the dumbest food names well, you can think of all right let me uh, i'll see if i can tell you the story of brian butterfield right uh, um because i i i think it's it's weirdly it's a character that was uh, i had the sketch show that ran for one season which is like seven quiches, quiches, <laughs> quiches large mass so uh, during uh, dinner <laughs> um uh, it was based on there was um there was a there was a tv ad for one of those like a personal injury lawyer and it was terrible and the guy looked exactly like brian butterfield does in those clips right he's like this big heavy set guy he's got like a kind of gray crew cut a, a, a suit that doesn't fit him but there's something about him that is that in this in this ad uh have you been injured at the workplace and his you can see his office behind him and and his office like looks like untidy right and that was the thing when we did he he has lots of different jobs different incarnations and whenever you see his office it always looks like it's been ransacked you know and we saw this ad and and just thought it was so funny let's let, let's rip off this guy and he's such a kind of I, I don't know. He's such a kind of type. Also, it looked like the guy had said, "Well, um, we're going to do an ad for your personal injury uh, service, but um, it's it's going to cost eight hundred pounds." No, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> I don't need an actor or presenter. I think I can handle that myself. Oh, where's the camera? Um, and uh, he. Uh, so it was like. Clearly, this guy was the was the guy who owned the company, you know. Uh, so we started filming this this these these sketches on my sketcher. The first thing was that we did like two whole days of me in this suit, and I, I wear like a lot of latex, and the makeup was was amazing. And um, on the third day, I came in, and this is like a new series, a new crew, and it was all like young camera crew, and people didn't recognize me. They thought the guy that was in the couple of days before was like another he was like another guy i suppose that's a testament to my amazing acting but anyway the uh then the camera assistant said to us this is meant to be this is that guy from the ad isn't it and i said yeah and she said i've worked with him i know who he is 
you've worked for that that guy who owns the company. He said, no, 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 no. He's an actor, right? He's a he's a, he's an actor. So, so that made it even more funny that this guy, whoever owns this personal injury thing, picked this actor to represent his company. What I like about it particularly is that I think it has a very uh, you quality to it, which is. It is this. It is a very finely observed performance. You're a gifted impressionist. You know you have an impressionist's eye for what are the funny details about the way someone is. It's all these different things, and it could be a very straight and probably would be a very funny parody of that kind of lawyer commercial that also exists here in the United States. Yeah. I know exactly the thing you're talking about. But instead what it is is a showcase for a list of 30 funny names for foods that you and your brother thought of. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I think that is something that is that is not unlike what is very funny about The Tick, which is The Tick is not so much about parodying superheroes, although it has the structure of a superhero parody. It's mostly about what is the weirdest phrase that we can come up with that sounds like it could come out of a superhero's mouth yeah i look i think you're absolutely right and i think and 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 also i would add that not weird just for the sake of being weird weird in like one of my favorite lines is the tick uh is when i look at arthur and he's surprised that he survived this fall or whatever and i say Look at you. You're as alive as a daisy. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. why? I, I, it's like, why is that funny? It's like, it's like slightly changed. It's slightly, your expectation is slightly changed. There's no pun there. Nope. But like, it's just when someone gets a, I don't even know why it is, but it's, and it also sounds like that, re, it, it, it also sounds like uh, an even more apt phrase than fresh as a daisy to me do you know what right. I mean? <laughs> there's a there's a part where you keep comparing your sidekick whose name is arthur both in real life and that's also his superhero name yeah to like a you say you're a real like small balloon of hope or something uh, precious b- balloon of hope yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what is what is <laughs> yeah. it has it has all the markers of a thing that makes sense and it has a weird sense to it but it's it's a completely it's a completely ineffable type of sense that it makes. You couldn't say what makes sense about that except that it does. Yeah. That's I, a very that's a tough thing to that's a tough thing to nail and it's something that you have to nail in your performance as well. Well, it's interesting cuz it, it goes back to that thing of like being Mr. important and spouting out nonsense that everyone just accepts. It's that similar thing of of these words which sound like they're profound or they're commonplace or you know, they mean something even and they don't, you know, but yet they do. You know, which is uh, – I was weirdly going to ask you. I know that you, you've got quite eclectic music taste and you're crazy hip-hop person, yeah. right? But also you like other g- genres of music, yeah? Yeah. I got into um, – I'm an American, Peter. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm a public radio host, Peter. If I say it all French, people will talk about how pretentious I am. And then if I don't, Sarah Finowich is going to make fun of me. If you like Peter's sketches, why not check out the rest of his oof? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. My interview with Peter Serafinowicz continues after a quick break. When we return, he'll tell me about the most important lessons he learned from great Saturday Night Live impressionists like Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, and Phil Hartman. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Scott Detrow. There is so much political news to follow these days, but you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. You can find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from REI. Human beings are becoming the world's first indoor species. Now that the average American spends 95% of their life indoors. Take the quiz at REI.com and see how small changes can lead to a better life outdoors. REI Co-op has everything you need to get outside more often, from gear to trips. REI has been sharing their passion for the outdoors since 1938. Visit REI.com or your local REI store. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Peter Serafinowicz, is an actor, a brilliant impressionist, a writer, and the star of the new live-action superhero comedy, The Tick, which is available to stream on Amazon now. I, I want to talk to you about your career directing music videos, uh, which has continued to pace these this past decade. Well, it, it has it stopped actually, and I, I saw that you tweeted this morning the uh, the Daft Punk video that I did for Get Lucky, and um, I don't think that was an I don't think that was a li- officially licensed product. Uh, but. You know what? It wasn't, but. Can you describe what happens in that video for our audience who hasn't seen it? People probably know the smash hit Daft Punk and Pharrell song, Get Lucky, featuring uh, Nile Rodgers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it opens on me and I'm like in a suit and I'm sort of dancing and miming along to the music. And then uh, quickly it's revealed that I've got three heads but on one body. So it's like... Uh, the middle one is the lead singer and then the two ones either side are the backing singers. And they've got slightly different personalities. And um, I, had the, I had the idea to do it because they just released this song. I'd done the Portland Comedy Festival. I was, uh, was on my way back home and I listened to it on the plane. I thought, wow, this is a great song. And uh, I listened to it like a lot on the plane. And then that sort of weird jet laggy, you know, not alive and not dead kind of state. When I got off the plane, I thought, is there a video for that? I want to pitch. Uh, I've got an idea for the for the video. And they said, they're not doing a video. They're doing like a little teaser. You know, they do like a little... A little mean little morsel, you know, and and they're not doing a, a proper video. So I said to my producer at the the video production company I, I work for at the time, I said, "Let's let's I've got this idea. Let's let's just get some favors and just make it." And it was like the next day, I think, we uh, we made it, and then we uh, we sent it to um, Universal 
and said, we've made this video. <laughs> you know, it didn't cost us anything. And um, and then they put it up on their site. And then I got... Because uh, uh, I wanted people to think that it was... <laughs> It was like the official video, and I and I was embracing it as well. I was like, I, I was not like lampooning it because I thought it was a great song, you know. But the best, best, best thing about it was that uh, I sent it to, uh, I tweeted it to Nile Rogers, who's been a lifelong hero of, of mine, and and uh, genuinely magical dude. Oh, guy. Yeah. I mean. One of the ten actual musicians, uh, m- magicians on the earth. One, of, you know, I think. And he messaged me back the next day saying, "We're, we're, ju- we're just being in the studio. We've been recording all day, and then we we just been watching your video in the studio on repeat." <laughs> go, oh, that's great. That's so great. I, I think he was with, he was doing, you know, he works with all kinds of people. I don't know who he's with, but like, I just thought, oh my God, well, you know, you know, things like that are real sort of jewels when they happen, you know? I mean, I feel like, here's the thing that, here's my working theory that I'm going to run past you, Peter. All right. My working theory is to be a great mimic and impressionist, to do great voices, to do these things that you're undeniably really quite good at, is a skill and a discipline. Like there is a there is an element to it of talent. You know, some people are better at it than others. But, you know, the folks who I know who are very good at it, it's because they have focused on it and worked at it in a way that... Um, you know, a lot of people in comedy, to the extent that they focused and worked on something, it's often almost accidental, right? It's like a stand-up has to go on stage every night, so they have the discipline of going on stage every night and focusing and working on something. So this is this discipline, and I know some really great impressionists, and some of them are really funny, and some of them, it's a parlor trick. It depends on how much they also dedicate to the joke part of it. And I feel like I have never known anyone who is so committed both to getting something, getting details of a voice or a thing right, and also doing something as stupid and silly as that list of foods that Brian Butterfield lists. <laughs> like, there's not even one premise to that list of foods. There's like seven premises. Like, it's they're, they're all, each one is funny in a different way. It's not like it builds on, like, there's a rhythm to it, but the, it's not like one of them is the same joke as the other one, but bigger. Um, yeah. I mean, it, and I feel like I, I wonder if you having this gift of and this skill of these voices and these impressions goads you towards this ridiculous silliness in part because ridiculous silliness that's the purest comedy like that is no one can say you're just an impressionist if you're doing as kind of complicated and ridiculous of jokes as you like to do uh talking about like impressions right it's like uh, going about them first of all as an actor right as an actor not somebody just immediately kind of you know, uh, making a face and 
but doing it as an actor, but also it's like impressionism as in like impressionistic painting as it it's your interpretation of that person so it doesn't have to be like this this replica that a computer couldn't detect that you know it's not that it's how you humans perceive things in different ways than that you know and and we pick up on funny unusual things and you know but 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 going back to as well what you said about like my silliness i mean i've always loved that i've always loved pretending to be an important person pretending to be somebody and then doing something very silly that's my sort of formula for for things you know i had a conversation with mike myers once <clears throat> about i had a, i had a really long conversation with him once about his uh, co- uh theories about comedy and my god he is like he is quite a scholar of comedy I was writing notes down as I was talking to him, uh, and <laughs> and now I can't remember what he said. What was it? Uh, one of the things he was he was saying that like comedy tends to fall into two main categories. Isn't it funny that? And wouldn't it be funny if? And I think most of mine is like, wouldn't it be funny if? I mean, I think that both sides of those things are related as well, like because they sort of reflect each other you know but uh but anyway that was he was like he was really like a wise he has some wise things to say yeah i mean i i certainly if i think of what impressionist has made me laugh the most present company accepted i i think of you know when i was 12 years old laughing insanely at dana carvey's impressions that really have only the barest sliver of relationship to the literal impression of a celebrity like it's really like it's at a certain point it's like him making a weird noise that reminds you of the celebrity uh, yeah or him like do, like repeatedly you know patting himself on top of the head and somehow that captures the essence of michael kane uh yeah i was never that familiar with dana carvey and like like when Wayne's World came out, like we did, we didn't get SNL in in the UK, you know, and and uh, that was like, what is this? This thing that was fully formed, but that was already in your conscious consciousness. But I did through the Simpsons, which is one of my all time favorite things. Through the Simpsons, I discovered Phil Hartman, and it was only after he died that I got to see all his stuff, all his SNL stuff. And, like, he's somebody that... He's one of my heroes, certainly. I mean, I I think he's, like... uh, You know, his approach to, like, impressions, you know, is always him, in a way. One of my favorite things, favorite, favorite, favorite things ever... (laughs) The the it's on the the Phil Hartman SNL VHS best of Phil Hartman and it's the one where he's the drama teacher. Have you ever seen that sketch? I don't remember it off the top of my head. He's a drama teacher in a new teaching New York actors in like a loft, right? And he's clearly he's like a has been actor and teaching. <laughs> he's 
this is one sketch. Like uh, Will Ferrell is in it, like, and he's about ten, right? And uh, Mike Myers is in it. Everyone is in it, right? And they're all like really young, and like Phil. No one can keep a straight face. <laughs> and Phil Hartman is this. He's he's playing this. Okay, right. What we're going to do today is uh, talking with beverages, right? Now, I'm going to tell you a story. It's uh, a Hollywood story. A good friend of mine, very close friend of mine, David Hasselhoff, he calls me. He says, I got this scene. I'm on set right now. I got the scene. Kit, my talking car, is refusing to jump the canyon. I have to convince him to jump the canyon. I don't know how to do it. Can you tell me how to do it? And I say to him, I say, David, and, and he just... He just does, he, he brings his hands up to his face, right? And he goes, he says, this is something, this is nothing. This is something, this is nothing. <laughs> and that's his, that's his catchphrase. That's what he, where, it's the only bit of advice he gives. <laughs> when he gets the students, they do a little bit of a scene. He says, no, no, no. No, terrible. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Now, look, this is something, this is nothing. This is something. This is nothing. Now go right, <laughs> and 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 uh, yeah, that I think that sketch has been just has influenced so much of my comedy as an adult. He is a f- genius, Peter Serafinovich. It's been a joy to have you on the program. Oh man, it is lovely, lovely to be on. Thank you for having me on, Jesse. It's lovely to see you. Peter Serafinowicz. The first season of The Tick is available to stream now on Amazon. It just got picked up for a second season, which should premiere next year. If you haven't seen any of Peter's music videos or his impressions, I recommend pretty much everything. But I have to say that my number one favorite thing that he has ever done is Look Around You. And uh, if you're in the UK, it's easy to find. If you're in the US, I think you can get it on DVD. And you can certainly see highlights on YouTube. We're getting close to the end of this week's Bullseye, but before we go, a culture recommendation from the depths of my heart. It's called The Outshot. Sports are as aesthetic as they are athletic, at least if you're watching. The clouds of snow in a winter football game, the sprays of ice off the blades of a pair of hockey skates, the pastoral expanse of a baseball field, and the outfits, the uniforms, especially the uniforms. Now, I personally have always been a uniform guy. I've always had a baseball cap on my head, especially when I was a kid. And even now, if I turn on a game like, I don't know, say say a college basketball game, and I don't have much rooting interest, I pretty much pick the team in the outfits I like best. And I have really, really strong feelings about things like that Cardinals jersey that has the bat and the two birds, one on the knob and one on the barrel. And I didn't know, honestly, that there were other people out there like me. I mean, I am a sports fan and a professional menswear writer. There aren't that many people in that particular overlap of Venn diagram. But then I found the blog UniWatch, a whole blog exclusively about sports uniforms. And my friends, this, this is my world. It's a world of people who care too much about things like 
like socks in baseball. Do you know about baseball socks? Traditionally, you wear, they call them sannies underneath, sanitary socks, thin white things. And then over that, you wear stirrups, which are like a colored sock if you cut the heel and the forefoot off of a pair of socks. So there was just a little strap that goes under the arch of your foot. Anyway, apparently they invented stirrups, the outer colored sock thing, after a player got blood poisoning, which I don't even know what that means, but basically a base runner's spikes gashed a hole in somebody's ankle, and then they thought that sock dye had gotten into the into the fielder's blood and the sanitary sock underneath. The idea of it was to prevent that from ever happening again. It's a little crazy when you say it out loud, but all medicine was crazy in 1894 or whatever. So anyway, not a lot of ball players show their socks at all anymore, and even fewer of them wear stirrups. So on UniWatch, in this weird alternative world where this is what people care about, on UniWatch, if there is a rookie who wears stirrups, or even just somebody with short pants that are bloused really nicely right around the calf, that is the biggest news in the world. I mean, there is this fantastic list of post categories in the sidebar of UniWatch. Lacrosse is one. Animals in uniform is one of the categories. Skate laces. Zippers. Generational suffixes is a category of posts. I mean, for real, there are whole posts about who does and doesn't have junior on the back of their uniform. One category is called corporate douchebaggery. I like that one. And of course, let me say that I am not foolish. I understand none of this really matters. I mean, maybe it matters a little whether there are ads on a sports uniform. I know that bothers me. That's a big topic on UniWatch. I'm grateful UniWatch has spent years crusading against racist logos and mascots. But it's just a luxurious bath in the intersection of athletics and aesthetics. Nerdery about the, the beautiful parts of jockery. It's rewarding, I think, to care about something that doesn't quite matter. And it's comforting in tough times. It's rewarding to give attention to something that doesn't help you survive. I mean, that is what art is. And if what you care about is the center fielder's socks, then I'm glad there's a place for you at UniWatch. Ah, who am I kidding? For us. A place for us. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where (laughs) apparently a colleague with a better view of the lake saw someone trying to bathe in there, which... It's not going to work. It's just not going to, it's just straight up not going to work. No amount of soap will get you clean 
once you get in that water. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records and by the Go Team. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you are at it, you can check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share our interviews there. We're also on Twitter, at Bullseye. You can follow us there. And that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 